This is the Passive Real Estate Podcast, the premier podcast for passive real estate investors. Matt Jones interviews experienced passive investors who share their industry secrets and active investors who show you different ways to invest passively. Welcome back. I'm Matt Jones. And today on the Passive Real Estate Podcast, I welcome Kathy Fetke. Welcome, Kathy. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, what would you like the audience to know about yourself? Well, if, if we're talking to a passive investor audience, I've been helping investors for over 20 years now build a real estate portfolio. People who live in high-priced markets who are just busy, they they have a career, they have money, and they don't have the time. Uh, you know, that's oftentimes there's people who have no money, but they have time. And so they can do more active real estate investing where they're fixing homes and flipping and so forth or wholesaling. But if you've already got a job, uh, it's really hard to find time to do that. So yeah, we've been helping passive investors for, for over 25 years and have 70,000 members at Real Wealth. Fantastic. <laughs> and uh, how did you get started with real estate investing? Totally by accident. <laughs> I would like to say it was planned and I knew my future, but not not even, not at all. I was uh, in the broadcast world in my first career. I had a degree from San Francisco State in broadcasting, worked at CNN and uh, Fox News and ABC. That, that was back when news was just news and and you didn't get to have a bias. <laughs> you had to be very non-biased, but uh, of course things have changed. But then I got married, had children, was a stay-at-home mom, kind of living the dream. We just bought a big house, a huge house, way too big. Uh, we were kind of doing the typical American dream situation, overspending, uh, you know, making money, but spending more, you know what I mean? <laughs> so mm -hmm. not not building that passive income. We didn't even know what that was. Uh, we just sort of kind of live in the life. And um, and then my husband came out with a book called Extreme Success. He was on a, a, a national book tour and everything was amazing. And then he noticed a freckle when he was on his book tour. And it turned out that freckle was melanoma. Mm -hmm. uh, after further testing, the melanoma um, had looked like it had spread to his liver. And the doctor told him he had six months to live. Wow. Yeah, he's he's alive and well today and fortunately got through that difficult time. But at the time, it was like, oh, we didn't have the right health insurance to cover it. We blew through our savings. We blew through our investments. We've been kind of doing everything right, putting 10% aside and uh, for emergencies, investing in index funds, kind of doing all the things your financial planner tells you to do. We couldn't get life insurance because he's an extreme athlete. So they weren't going to cover him for that. So it was like, gosh, how am I going to, raise my children. If the doctor's right, how do I do, how do I be a, a stay at home mom and make money? That was, that was really the driving force for me. I didn't want to believe the doctor and I really wanted to believe that Rich was going to be fine. And he is, but it motivated me to study this thing that I didn't know anything about. And I had a radio show still from, from my broadcast years. So I just used that as a platform. This was before a podcast or YouTube or anything was a thing. And I just started interviewing people to find out what this thing called passive income was. And that's when I learned about real estate. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, with podcasts now, it's, there's a lot more information available um, more readily, but th that's great that you had sort of the original podcast, radio broadcasts uh, to, yes. to go off. Um, and then currently, do you invest passively or actively or a bit of both? Well, um, so on that show, it's called The Real Wealth Show, and it's a podcast now, but back then it was a, a very large station in San Francisco. So I was able to uh, interview big names because they wanted to get on that platform. So I was able to interview Robert Kiyosaki back in 2004. Mm -hmm. And this is when, you know, there was a big bubble, obviously that was the easy loan time and people were just 
buying properties everywhere because you didn't have to put any money down. You didn't have to qualify. You could have as many as you wanted. It was crazy times. So I was kind of looking at this and brand new to that world. It was like, this, none of this makes sense. You know, when these loans adjust, it's, it's going to be negative cash flow. It, you know, people aren't going to be able to afford all these properties. Like it was super obvious. And then when I had Kiyosaki on the show, he confirmed that. He said, yeah, it's going to be a, you know what show. So <laughs> he, um, he, and he doesn't, he, he doesn't spare on, on the dirty words. Just so you know, if you've ever met Kiyosaki, he says it like it is. So he told me the three fundamentals that we use today when it comes to real estate investing, that is look like follow the jobs, follow the population growth and look for affordable markets. So back then he targeted Dallas, Texas. Today, you can look at Dallas and say, well, yeah, of course, that's a great place to invest. But back then, everyone thought we were crazy because it wasn't what it is today. It was just beginning its boom. So I learned early on how to know when an area is going to boom and how to get ahead of that and, and you know, buy when it's cheap, but kind of go along with the appreciation of that the entire area is going to get because of all the growth happening. So we ended up buying, you know, again, this was back when you could get no money down, investment property loans, as many as you wanted, no verification needed. Um, so I went to Dallas. I talked to 10 different property managers, learned where the you know the jobs were, where people were calling for rentals. And I ended up buying five properties that weekend, um, again, no money down, but they cash flowed. So it just made sense. Fantastic. So what are your criteria now when you're looking at different markets to choose uh, one that's up and coming, that, that's affordable, like you said, uh, that you think is going to become a, a much bigger boom area in the future? Well, it's, it's it's the exact same things. Follow the jobs, follow the, you know, people follow jobs. So follow the jobs, follow the people, and there's going to be a need for housing. There's going to be a need for real estate, whether it's commercial, uh, whether it's retail. If there's people and there's more of them coming than there is real estate, there's going to be a boom. So you just have to follow the demographics. It's really not that hard. And, and we've been able to see that there are some major demographic shifts happening. We, we saw over the past three years that there was a big shift into for, for companies to go into states where they're employer-friendly, where they're job-friendly states. We learned very clearly over COVID which states are not job-friendly, and we learned which ones are. And a lot of businesses said, well, gosh, you know, I want to be in a place that doesn't gonna, isn't going to shut me down. I can say in LA, if you tried to operate during the, during COVID, uh, they would turn off your water and your, and your electricity, like you couldn't do it. So, you know, a lot of those companies just picked up and moved to places like Texas and Florida and, and some of those states in the Southeast that were more job friendly over the pandemic. And of course, people will have different opinions on that. But if we're just talking jobs and people who need to live somewhere or who need, you know, again, if it's commercial real estate or whatever, that's where the boom is. So a lot of migration to the Southeast was already happening over the past decade, but it really picked up speed over the last few years. And what resources are you using to obtain that demographic data? A U.S. Census, you know, they, that's that's the easiest, but we also use, you know, there's fun things like moving trucks. They, they share every January where they're getting the most demand to move. Um, U-Haul comes out with, you know, where where, you know, people are using U-Hauls and that tends to be the more affordable, you know, you know, if you're, you know, I don't know, uh, an executive, you're not using U-Haul, you're, you're using Atlas or something. So both will come up with their own. And so Atlas is going to be kind of the higher end where people are moving and U-Haul is where, um, you know, the average person is moving with U-Haul. It's been Texas and Florida at the top all the time. You've got Alabama and there, Georgia, the Carolinas, 
Uh, and of course we saw Boise um, really boom from a lot of Californians just, you know, wanting to get out of California and uh, be in a more tax-friendly environment and, and a place with water. You know, we had a major drought. Um, so people just want to go where they can take a shower or water their garden. Uh, so we, you know, we saw a lot of, a lot of just migration to those areas with Atlas it, with the higher end, it was again, the Carolinas, um, you know, there were some going to Florida, a lot of Californians moving to Arizona as well, Arizona and uh, Nevada. And I know uh, we're starting to see more kind of extreme weather events, uh, you know, droughts, floods, hurricanes, that sort of thing. Do you see, you know, how, how do you think the migrations are going to change based on that uh, you know, over the coming years? Well, you would think that, you know, that people would care about these things, but it really hasn't slowed migration over mm. Florida. It's kind of shocking. So the places in Florida that we invest are not in flood zones. I would never invest in a flood zone. It's it's going to be expensive. Your insurance is going to be so high. So we're inland a little bit. Florida's used to hurricanes. Uh, our, we had a, one of our clients bought a house in Fort Myers, a brand new property, and the last massive storm went right over it. Um, we know what kind of it did to, to the coast there, but his house was completely fine. They lost electricity and some windows were broken, but... The new builds are are more hurricane resistant. So, and he's not in a flood zone. So they really just, it's just par for the course, you know, in Florida. It's kind of like California. Like, why do we live? Why do I live here? Why do so many people live in California with earthquakes? But we do and fires. So, you know, it's just you know, choices that people make. Uh, with Texas, they, they don't have as many issues. Of course, they've had the ice storms and so forth. Uh, but the tornadoes tend to be more in, in Oklahoma. There's not really a tornado corridor so much in, in Texas. They do have hailstorms. And uh, what what's the positive of that is it's insured. So about every 10 years, you get a new roof because of the hailstorm. It's going to tear up your roof and you get a new one, you know, so it's not that bad. Yep, that's fair. So, you know, I, I think we're in a, an unprecedented time with housing. It's it's really weird. Like the kind of things that are going on now really haven't been in the past. So it's really hard to say like, oh, this is the exact same as it was in 2006 or seven or because it's not. There's completely different things going on. Uh, where would you say the state of uh, housing is going to be over the coming years? Um, trying to compare now with the 2008 housing, housing crisis, it, it, they don't compare. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're as different as they could be. And I think I think people still have open wounds, you know, from that. It was a really tough time. A lot of people went into foreclosure. Millions went into bankruptcy. Uh, nobody wants to go through that again. Children saw their parents go through it. Children lost their homes. So they're scarring. And everybody wants to think, oh my gosh, with prices this high, a crash is coming, but there's other fundamentals that need to be paid attention to. So just a couple of comparisons. Back then, I was a mortgage broker. I know how easy it was to get a loan in the in the mid 2000s. It it took nothing. They were called Nina loans. No income, no assets. It should have been Nina NP, like no income, no assets, no problem. No one was checking to see if you were lying on your loan. Everyone knew you were lying, and nobody bothered to check. So. You had a lot of people with poor credit and no backup who were getting loans that you know were going to adjust. So it was kind of obvious what was going to happen. Um, at that time, you also had the Gen X generation that was at first-time homebuyer age, and that's a much smaller generation than the millennials or the boomers. So if you look at the graph, it kind of it goes like this. So right at the time when anybody could get a house, anybody could get a loan any builder could get a loan. 
there were over 4 million homes in the, you know, for sale at that time and a very small population needing those homes. Fast forward to today, we have less than a million homes on the market and we have the largest generation. When you look at the um, demographics, there's, it goes like this and then there's this bubble and that's where we are right now of millennials between the ages of 30 and 34. It's the largest group uh, within millennials and the millennials are the largest population. So a massive bubble, not of housing, but of people who want a place to live, who are getting married, who are having children, have dogs, don't, you know, have experienced a pandemic. They want to have a backyard. They want to have space. They want their kids in a good school. Um, They don't necessarily want to live in apartments. And many of these people are, you know, millennials were raised understanding technology. So many of them can live anywhere. And and they're the most educated group. Uh, Most of them have gone to college. It's the largest group that's gone to college and has a degree. So you've got this very educated group of people, the largest ever in history, right at household formation age, at a time when we have a fourth of the inventory that we had in 2008. So right there, supply and demand tells you how different this market is. And then finally, you've got a situation where the people who own homes are not in distress. Their payments aren't adjusting. They had to put money down. They had to qualify open book every document possible to prove they could pay it. They had very the highest credit scores ever. Uh, so these are very qualified people who had to put money down, are locked in, their payments aren't adjusting, and they've created an enormous amount of equity, so that record amounts of equity that they're sitting on. So there's no distress with homeowners. They have the lowest payment compared to income ever because they're locked into such low payments that aren't changing yet wages have gone up. So there's there's just not distress. You don't, there's not distress sales where there's not distress with homeowners. The distress today is with the renters because they it's gonna be very difficult. It's way too expensive to own right now with prices up and, and mortgages up. So they're forced to rent. So the stress is not the homeowner today, it's the renter. Um, in addition to that, the big stress when TVs talking about real estate being in trouble, they're talking about commercial real estate because that is adjustable. Those loans are adjustable and those payments are changing and they're going up dramatically with lots of zeros. It's not like a $100,000 loan. We're talking about a $50 million loan that just went from a 2% rate to an 8% rate. It go, it went from a million to, to like 4 million or whatever. Like it's hugely different. Uh, so commercial real estate's in trouble today. Renters are struggling, but homeowners are in the best position they've ever been in. Yeah, I hear you. And there's also a lot of homeowners that are locked in at like 3% interest rates. And even if they want to move, they don't want to jump into a, you know, eight plus uh, percentage rate house uh, and leave their 3% interest rate. So there's just not as much availability. You're right. Uh, but there's all, still a great demand. So the demand is driving the prices, you know, regardless of the interest rates right now. And yeah, uh, yeah I don't know what's going to change, uh, you know, anytime soon with that. Yeah. And, you know, people think that the housing market came to a standstill. There's still over 4 million homes that have traded hands over the past year. So there's still home selling. It's usually closer to 5 million um, that homes that trade, but, you know, it's still selling. 
And I think part of that is that you have a lot of people moving from high-priced markets to more affordable markets because they can live anywhere. They can work remotely. And it's easy to afford homes in those areas. Someone coming from New York or New Jersey, buying in Florida or Georgia, it's it's a joke how cheap it is for them, you know? Yeah. And so people who are living in apartments who want to get a house, you know, houses, the prices are are, are crazy, but there's just not enough available of housing uh, for the number of people. And so that's driving the demand for rental properties. You're right as well. And so, you know, rental properties are doing great too, because of rents are just, just skyrocketing. The, the demand is greater than the supply. Yeah. I started, you know, I, I'm generally um, doing the opposite of what the masses are doing. Sure. The minute we knew that, that rates were going up, people freaked out and there were a lot of headlines that there was a housing crash. We had the complete opposite reaction. It was like, oh, well, mortgages are going up. That means there's going to be a whole lot of people, there's 25 million people priced out of buying. They're going to be forced to rent. What are we going to do? We're going to find rentals for them. So I immediately started a single family rental fund and we've been buying up homes that need work. We've raised the cash. We, we raised millions of dollars in cash. We buy those properties all cash. We fix them up all cash. And we're providing that affordable housing that's needed for people who can't afford to buy at this time. And I know some you know big companies like uh, Zillow was doing that uh, quite a bit, but then they slowed down on that. I think partially because of their contractors, they they couldn't have get enough contractors to do the work that they needed for the amount of houses that they were buying. Uh, how is that going for you with uh, fixing up the properties? Well, um, you know, ours is much smaller scale than Zillow and Zillow is a tech company. So, you know, stay in your lane, right? You know, they, <laughs> they, um, they really took a beating on that. And anytime I've gone out of my lane, I've kind of taken a beating too. And, you know, focus on what you know. And I think Zillow's learning now they're going into lending, you know, so we'll see how that goes, but stick with your model. Um, for us, our single family home, we're exceeding our, our expectations. Uh, we're We're buying properties that after fixing them still have 20, 30% equity in them, because what we found is there's no competition. Our competition for distressed homes, homes that, you know, maybe an elderly person lived in, they didn't have the money to fix it up when they died. Their kids were like, I don't know what to do with this. So we, and, and the bank, you know, no one, can, the banks won't finance it because they're old or they need, they're in disrepair. So we're, we're getting ridiculous deals. And uh, and and actually getting rents higher than the one percent rule, which is like, yeah, if we're if we're buying and renovating, and let's say we're all in at one hundred twenty thousand in the North Texas area, North Dallas, um, but the rents are coming in thirteen hundred. They're coming in far higher than we expected, and the appraisals are coming in higher. Actually, the areas that we're investing in in North Texas have gone up twelve percent this past year. At a time when people thought there was going to be a big housing crash, it's the opposite that we're seeing. Fantastic. And then are you buying these single family houses just yourself or as a joint venture, or are you taking on some passive investors as well? Yeah, we're taking on passive investors. So it's it's a fund and um, it's 506C. So we can, it has to be accredited investors only. And um, they, they, it's an 8% target return. And we're exceeding that because like I said, we're kind of shocked that we're the only one at the table because a lot of the bigger funds, they rely on, on funding and that funding is really expensive right now. So the numbers don't work for them, but we're just raising cash and we're buying all cash. Uh, we will finance when we'll just refinance kind of a Burr model. Basically we'll get all our money back out because the, the appraisals came in so high. 
when rates come down a little bit. Right now, it doesn't make sense, but I would say in about six months, you know, it could be better. Rates could be lower, in which case we would refinance and buy some more. Yeah, it's, yeah. it is open. Yeah, it's open for investment. Oh, fantastic. So if somebody wanted to invest with you, how could they find out more about, uh, I guess, the process and the next steps? Yeah, it's growdevelopments.com is our website. That's where you'll find both our Texas fund and then we have a build to rent fund in Southern Oklahoma. This again is like, what? But when you go north of Texas, north of Dallas, about an hour, it's the Oklahoma border. And Oklahoma is now looking at removing their state income tax. And we think when that happens, there's going to be a huge boom. In the meantime, Texas is getting so expensive that a lot of people need affordable housing and they'll, they're will they willing to drive the 15 minutes to go into Oklahoma where it's cheaper. So we've got a build to rent fund there. Nice, nice. So how can a, an accredited investor determine whether or not you and your team are a good match for what they're looking for in an investment? Uh, you know, when you're wanting to invest with somebody, it's so important to look at, you know, the track record, to really understand what you're investing in. I've seen a, lo a lot of people are struggling, struggling now with, having invested in a, like a syndication where there's a capital call now because it's an apartment and insurance has gone up and the, the rate is adjustable. So, you know, it, you've got to understand the underwriting and with our fund, it's kind of simple. It's not complicated at all. We're buying houses that we're getting cheap, renovating, um, you know, it's, it's, it's simple to understand. Uh, we have at Grow Developments, there's probably five webinars on the market, why we like the market, what who the employers are in North Texas. I don't know if you heard about the Biden's um, chips, it's called Chips Act, mm -hmm. um, reshoring chip manufacturing to the US to get it out of Korea and China and bring, you know, there's a lot of reshoring happening. And a lot of those jobs are landing in North Dallas. So we are buying these little houses all around this area north of um, McKinney where just billions, there's $5 billion worth of chip manufacturing factories being built in the area. We, we're getting these properties for so cheap because the locals don't really understand what's happening. There's a new airport coming in, massive uh, freeway expansion. It's all the things I love to see, the infrastructure growth, jobs coming in and, and not enough housing. So um, yeah, so I would say, you know, you look, go through the webinars to understand who we are, my partner, is a property manager in North Dallas. She owns $40 million worth of real estate. I've worked with her for 10 years helping investors. We, at Real Wealth, my company, we help investors build their own portfolio. We've been working with her for 10 years and only rave reviews. So, you know, just really understanding the investment and the people behind it is the key. Fantastic. And now what's the problem that you've encountered with a real estate investment and how was it handled? Oh my gosh. There's been so many, <laughs> which one should I, <laughs> which one should I look at? I, I'll say this one. Cause it's, it's kind of funny um, at, at real wealth. You know, when I start, when I bought those five properties in Texas back in 2005, they cash flowed. We bought $120,000 brand new properties in Rockwell, Texas. I talked about it on my radio show. And then my phones rang off the hook with people going, Oh, who's the builder? Who's your property manager? Who'd you use for insurance? And that's when real wealth was born. It's like, Oh, people just want a referral to companies with a track record, right? And it's hard to know who to trust when you're investing out of state. So Real Wealth does that. It connects you with teams that we've worked with that now we have a 10-year history with, in some cases, 15-year history with. Uh, so, oh my gosh, what was your question? Oh yeah, the thing. Oh. Okay, so I've set up these teams across the country 
who, you know, we refer thousands of investors to. So one team, and I always want to test it first. I want to test it because I want to know that the team is good. I want to, you know, before I talk about it or refer anyone. So in Pittsburgh, right outside of Pittsburgh, kind of between Cleveland and Pittsburgh is this little town called Newcastle. And I met someone there who was selling real estate. I met him at a real estate investment club meeting that I was asked to speak at. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting what you're doing. Newcastle, there was like oil and gas there and the houses were like 50 grand. And like, how, you know, how do you go wrong with that? So I'm like, let me test one, I'll buy one. And then before we present it to our members. So I buy this house and and uh, I get a call. I, 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 I didn't go see it. I didn't do an inspection, didn't get an appraisal. I was like, this guy is probably gonna wanna really impress me, right? Because I'm about to refer thousands of people. I'm sure it's a great deal. I didn't do my due diligence. Like I can't believe it in my position that I didn't do that, but I really didn't think in my position anyone would try to rip me off. I go see the property after I closed and the neighbors are like, you know, that house is red tagged, right? You better get your tenants out because it's dangerous. Like what? And uh, they're like, yeah, there's children in there and the house could collapse. (laughs) So I go in, I'm like, I need to pay you guys to leave, get out of this house. I don't want anything to happen to your child. And, uh, and sure enough that it was, the foundation was about to fall apart literally had been red tagged that the guy, the neighbor comes out and he goes, you're the dummy. You're, you're the dummy Californian who bought this without seeing it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yep. So, uh, I was able to, you know, threaten a lawsuit and he bought it back. I was like, what were you thinking? <laughs> you know, like, oh, man. what was I thinking? You know, what was I thinking? So the bottom line is no matter who you are, no matter who you're dealing with, I don't care if it's your mother, your brother, don't trust anyone. Just just take that out of the equation and look at business as business, investment as investment, and take the trust out of it. So what I should have done, which I tell everyone to do, is get in an appraisal, get an inspection, like do your do the minimum, right? Get someone local independent to take a look at your property. Uh, I mean, it just seems so basic, but I've met too many people who skip that that step. Yeah, I, I would say trust, but verify, you know, yeah. like, like, okay, I believe what you're saying. And we're going to go ahead and get that appraisal just to confirm yeah. uh, what you said to me is, is okay. Yeah. Okay. Are you ready for a speed round? Yeah. What's your favorite part about passive real estate investing? Uh, that is passive. <laughs> <laughs> and I like a lot of the flow through that you get the tax deductions as mm-hmm. well. Someone else is doing the work for you. Uh, you know, you get to diversify you're not, um, there's less fees, although you should always check on that. But, you know, if you look at, at uh, Wall Street, there's a lot of fees and, you know, in passive investing that you've eliminated some of that. It, but read your documents because some people do love to charge a lot of fees. That's true. What do you know now about passive real estate investing that you wish you knew when you first got started? Um, not to do anything too fancy. I, I've gotten sucked into some deals that really looked so good on paper and so exciting, like a wine village in Northern California that, you know, it never ended up getting off the ground because uh, banks don't know how to underwrite a wine village. Mm-hmm. It was just too different. It was super cool, but never got off the ground. Lost my money there. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one, um, I invested in a tech startup. You just have to know, like the idea was fabulous, but tech startups fail on the, for the most part. And um, so you have to be willing to lose your money on something like that. And uh, I was able to get my money back, like 90% of it. But, you know, these are just, again, things 
if you're if you're just going to do something bread and butter like this has been done retail's been done over and over again multifamily's been done single family like this is there's a system and a process but something different new you need to have a lot of money to invest in those types of things and just invest a little bit and know that it's at risk <laughs> very good what's a book that you can recommend to other investors well i will i will recommend my husband's new book called the wise investor because it's a parable it's a story about a young man's um, desire to build wealth and um, get off the treadmill. And so many young men have related to this. So I think it's, I think it's wonderful because I, I don't mean to use the sex card here, but I think still for sure when I started real estate, and I think it's still true today that there's a tremendous amount of pressure on men to be able to take care of the family and the finances and the investments while working. There's just a lot of pressure. So this, this story just kind of gives a lot of insights on how to balance all of that. Very good. And uh, so I'll have uh, growdevelopments.com in the show notes. Are there any other ways that our listeners can get in contact with you if they want to learn more about what you have going on? Yeah, realwealth.com is our main company. And it has a section called where you just click on the invest tab and it'll show a bunch of the cities that we're in and offer you free data, free webinars, um, access to our investment counselors, that can help you um, build your portfolio and referrals to teams across the country that come highly recommended by our 70,000 members. So realwealth.com. Great. Is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't covered yet? Um, Just, you know, hang in there and get educated. I would say number one, first and foremost, is pick a lane and dive into it. So if it's multifamily, if it's single family, if it's retail, warehouse, industrial, whatever, dive in, read at least three books, listen to podcasts, make sure you're an expert on that asset class because real estate is used too widely. There's a ton of asset classes within real estate and uh, you could do well in some. They're all in their own little mar you know, uh, economic cycle. So they don't necessarily affect each other. So it's, uh, it's really important to understand yours. Like storage, I won't get into storage because I just don't understand it well enough. I don't know dynamics because I don't have the time to study it. That's fair. All right, well, thank you so much for all of the valuable uh, insights that you've offered our listeners today. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. Subscribe to this podcast to stay updated on new episodes. Leave a review to let us know that you enjoy the content. There are tons of ways to invest in real estate that you can explore by reading Matt Jones's book called Book About Real Estate. It summarizes many top real estate books all in one. Find it on Amazon, Audible, iTunes, Google Play, or barnesandnoble.com. If you want to learn more about passive real estate investing, go to hawkwingcapital.com.